trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I suspect you are a fellow truth seeker. And whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or this is your first time tuning in, welcome. I hope you'll find what I have to share with you today of value. Let's bow our heads here for a quick prayer. Okay, I'm not going to take it that far, but <laughs> I want you to know that I do I do take this seriously enough that uh, that's that's one of the things that when I'm preparing for the show, when I'm when I'm pulling together stuff, I really do ask the Almighty to to help me find what would be of value, what will be useful and enlightening without uh, helping bring more anger or fear to an already anger, angry and fearful uh, situation. So that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to do, make the best use of my resources to uh, hopefully bring some truth and light. You know, what you do with this information is up to you. I don't insist that you have to accept it. I just hope that you find it uh, either useful, encouraging, or clarifying in some way that you realize, okay, I've got a, I got a sense of what's going on here. Now I can get to work doing what's within my sphere of influence, which it turns out there's actually a lot that we can and should be doing. I want to start with something that uh, I, I want to share this with you. This is not uh, pimping for uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. I'm not telling you, hey, this is our guy. This is the man for 2024. But I want you to hear the perfect answer when someone tries to to pin you down with a gotcha question about, well, have you condemned racism or white supremacy? The, the, the woke culture, unfortunately, I don't care how innocent your life is, you're going to find someone who's going to accuse you of, you know, you have privilege and you engage in racism. You're not even conscious of it. That's how racist you are. You don't even recognize it. And occasionally someone will, will get brave and say, well, then why don't you just condemn it? As if, you know, if I confess to them that, uh, yes, I am bending the knee and I'm part of the woke religion, you know, somehow that's going to go easier on you. It's not. It's an invitation to a struggle session. And they want you to struggle and to, to confess your sins to them. Okay, Vivek Ramaswamy has the perfect answer to such questions. This is a Washington Post reporter asking him, about condemning white supremacy. Check out his response. You didn't say that you condemn white supremacy. I'm not, I'm not going to recite some catechism for you. I'm against vicious racial discrimination in this country. So I'm not pledging allegiance to your new religion of modern wokeism, which absolutely fits, fits the test. I'm not going to bend the knee to your religion. I'm sorry. I'm not asking you to bend the knee to mine, and I'm not going to bend the knee to yours. But do I condemn vicious racial discrimination? Yes, I do. Am I going to play your silly game of gotcha? No, I'm not. And frankly, this is why people have lost Trust. And I know you're going to go print the headline tomorrow. I already know this. We already know how your game works. Vivek Ramaswamy refuses to condemn white supremacy because you asked a stupid question. The reality is I condemn vicious racial discrimination in this country. But the kind of vicious and systematic racial discrimination we see today is discrimination on the basis of race in a very different direction. You want to know what the best way is to end discrimination on the basis of race? Stop discriminating on the basis of race. Do that, and we're going to move this country forward. And I don't care whether you're black or white or brown or anything in between. That's how we're going to unite this country. You people have been responsible for dividing this country to a breaking point, creating a projection of national division. I meet people from the south side of Chicago to meetings like this one of every shade of melanin, 
multiple from man to woman, doesn't make a difference, who are hungry for reviving unity in this country. And you, with your catechism that you try to get to politicians to whatever fake headline you're going to print on the basis of this conversation tomorrow, that's what's dividing this country for a break, to a breaking point. Shame on you. Look people in the eye and tell them what you've actually failed to tell them for the last five years. Own the accountability for your own failures as the media. That's how we rebuild trust in this country. And until then, I don't have a lot of patience to play the games. Wow. Uh, hello, 911. Yeah, I uh, I need to report a murder. <laughs> or at least uh, somebody contact the burn section of the hospital and let's, let's, uh, let's get her to the burn unit quickly. Look, this wasn't about him trying to score points on her, okay? He wasn't trying to dunk on her. This wasn't a setup to make him look better at her expense. This was a highly biased reporter trying to push that narrative. Oh, yes, it's all about race. It's all about, you know, wokeism. And, and he was having none of it. And, and here's what I want you to take away from it. You don't have to say word for word what he said, but I want you to notice he was absolutely unapologetic. Now, that doesn't mean he was hateful or he was angry with her. He just firmly said, that dog isn't going to hunt, which that's, that's a pretty nice way of, of telling somebody, yeah, you know, you can, you can sit on that and spin. It, agree or disagree with, with uh, Mr. Ramaswamy as a candidate, that was an act of statesmanship to not play the game. I mean, look, does it feel sometimes like, like the deck is, is, is really stacked against you based on your skin color? It's like people have looked around and said, well, we've identified the problem with the world. Or No, we'll make it bigger. We've identified a problem in the universe, and it's you. Why? Well, because of your skin color. You don't even know. You don't even recognize you know, the values that you bring. You're too obtuse to understand your actions. Your very presence threatens everyone in the room. Don't you even understand how you make people feel? You think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I actually saw a great article. I didn't share this. I might do this in the next couple of days, but uh, I, this is an article by Michael Herman. And basically, he makes the case, look, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusivity, or discrimination, exclusion, and let's see, what was the uh, third one? I. Um, I can't remember what it was. I was going to say instability, but <laughs> it still fits. That's the new metric. And basically, it's measured you unfit. Look, most of us are simply middle-class dolts going about our business. We don't mean any harm, but oh boy, do you need that DEI training in the worst possible way because your unconscious bias is so deep and it's so ensconced inside you, you just have no idea of the privileged life you've led. You have harmed people of color just by existing. Don't you get it? You struggle to pay the bills, but they always get paid. That's proof of your privilege. I mean, pay on time? Another one of your stupid white racist constructs? How are you going to pay after the money runs out? Are you stupid? And he, the point that, that Michael Herman is making, and this is a little bit chilling, is he says, should the Democrats win again in 2024? And by the way, um, I think you'll, you'll like Doug Casey's take on this. Um, I'm going to share an article or at least excerpts of an article of his later on in the show. Um, he says, if I had to bet on who is going to carry 2024... It's probably going to be the Democrats, not because they're putting up a candidate that, that is actually worth supporting, but they're better at cheating. They're willing to do whatever it takes. There are no rules. There are no constraints. So the point here that, uh, that Michael Herman is making is he says, 
if the Democrats win in 2024, it will be time for a new paradigm. We will all go through DEI training. It'll be mandatory. Every value that you value has to be rendered meaningless. In other words, MAGA cannot be allowed to win. That's a return to white values in the minds of those who are pushing this DEI stuff. People of color aren't going to govern on white values. There's an entirely new set of rules. You can start with things like theft under $1,000. is instant reparations. It's not even theft. But as you're going to hear Joe Biden talk about here in, in a couple of days as he, um, I don't know if celebrates or exploits the anniversary of January 6th, you're going to hear that uh, the biggest threat to the USA is MAGA, which is, is euphemism. It's not just, you know, about Trump. Can we, can we just be, be clear about this? MAGA is simply people who want to return to the traditional values of limited government, individual rights, and that means for every individual, regardless of skin color, and the ability to live your life unmolested. But that's not the kind of thing that, uh, that we're going to be allowed to do, at least under the, the current regime. Now, I know that sounds like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of bad news. And it's not written in stone, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I think this is one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about everything we can do to minimize our governmental footprint. In other words, to create distance between us and the systems that are trying to rule us and otherwise reshape us the way they want us to be, anything you can do in that respect is time well spent. So maybe that's where we ought to be spending our efforts, becoming more self-sufficient, creating community, creating parallel institutions. I mean, depending on where you live, you know, if, if your kids are still in a, in a public education setting, it might be time to get them out and focus on educating them um, in, in a different way like homeschooling or, you know, some kind of a co-op. I know, I don't want to believe that this is all real. I don't want to believe, well, this sounds like there's some kind of a big battle going on. There is. There is. And, and the problem is there are a lot of folks who are very, very late to the realization that this is going on. By the way, they're not stupid and they're not evil for failing to recognize this. It's like getting a fish to recognize water. Wait, water? What's that? You know, it's all around you. You just get so used to it that you don't see it plus the incremental nature of how these kind of things are implemented. But you know, or at least you're aware, you wouldn't be listening to this program if you weren't aware at some level. Now we have to find the courage to reclaim our autonomy and to live our lives on our terms, not somebody else's. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to thank my sponsors who make this program possible. They include LifesavingFood.com, QuiltAndSew.com, TMCPNation.com, and Ironsight Brewing Company. That's IronsightBC.com. That is a subscription coffee service. It's, it's the latest brainchild of my friend John Harvey. And uh, I've got to have John on the show to talk a little bit about how this came about. I mean, look, not everybody's a coffee drinker, but I'll tell you, there are enough coffee drinkers out there. That is a booming industry. And what John has put together is a company that you can subscribe to if you're a coffee drinker. How about from the roaster to your cup 
in less than 72 hours. Lots of uh, amazing blends to choose from. You can just click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com and John will take it from there. So I want to give you uh, I want to give you an idea of what word games look like because you're, you're hearing word games being played all the time. Virtually every mass media outlet excels at it. Politicians excel at it. Um, bureaucrats, <laughs> academia, and in fact, let's talk about academia. This is an article about a CNN anchor assuring viewers that uh, former Harvard President Claudine Gay did not plagiarize. She was only accused of copying other people's writings without attribution. I mean, surely you can see the difference. Now, you and I both know the difference is she's a woman whose skin color is a certain hue, and that's why, you know, very few people, I'm what, 700, you know, Harvard uh, faculty people were, were, oh, no, it's not, it's not plagiarism. Then we stand up for her. But finally, the evidence got to be too much, and, and Harvard risked losing its entire prestige and credibility if they continued with the charade. So they quietly shuffled her back from, from president back into the faculty. She keeps her $900,000 a year job. And really, there's no shame attached, which is interesting because there are a lot of people whose careers, academic careers and otherwise, were crushed and stopped because of plagiarism. Olivia Murray in this article says, if only there were a word for this kind of sloppy work in academia where someone takes another's writing and passes it off as, as their own. Yes, if only. As Alas, though, that mystery word didn't come to a CNN analyst Matt Egan despite the fact he couldn't quite articulate it, he does know that what Claudine Gay allegedly did is not plagiarism. And what he said was, we should note that Claudine Gay has not been accused of stealing anyone's ideas in any of her writings. She's been accused of more like copying other people's writings without proper attribution. <laughs> he should have taken a clue from his colleagues and just referred to Gay's actions as mostly honest plagiarism. She's not a thief. She just took intellectual property that didn't belong to her. She's not a cheater. She just passed off other people's work as her own. As Egan says, this is a case of sloppy attribution and nothing more. She's not a fraud. She just took credit for somebody else's academic accomplishments. And mind you, at this point, the alleged plagiarism violations now number more than 50. And what's really ridiculous is, though, is that... Apparently, Gay's resignation does not mean her departure, and as, re as reported by Fox News, she is set to continue as a fixture at the university and return to faculty duties. But isn't that just carte blanche to students who wish to cheat in her classes? What an utter joke. She says, I'm sorry, but on what planet does someone allegedly get to cheat their way to a doctorate, seemingly get caught, and then still get to retain the doctor title? Maybe everybody who meets her and says, oh, I'm so pleased to meet you, and put it in air quotes, Dr. Gay, thank you. May I steal Dr. Carol Swain's brilliant words and call myself Dr. Olivia Murray? No, says Olivia, because I'm not a DEI candidate hire. I guess this is par for the course in a country that refers to someone who stole the presidency as the actual president. She says the lows that the legacy media will sink to in order to protect the narrative and the left are an expected direction, but every new instance is just as astounding as the last. But hey... It's not like CNN or any of the other establishment media outlets or state-sponsored propaganda supporting the regime at every turn. They're full of journalists who are just parroting the script and prompts from the Democrats and government without attribution and proper recognition. By the way, I love that she, she ends with a quote from Claudine Gay uh, from her book, 1984. 
The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that last uh, that last one was uh, that was a slap that landed. That was pretty good. Ah, look, I laugh about it because otherwise, really, I don't feel like I have much choice but to kind of sob that that we have devolved so deeply. And it, it's it's sad to me how everything, you know, is turned into a matter of race. You, you have people saying, well, the only reason she was she was pushed out of her position wasn't because of the dishonesty. And again, the 50 plus cases. Look, one thing might be an aberration or it might be somebody misinterpreting 50 or more instances of cut and paste, that's not good. And and and, to, and we're expected to pretend, though, that it, that it really is. I don't know. I would rather live in reality, even if that reality sometimes is difficult. In fact, I want to recommend uh, um, a Substack, if you haven't subscribed to it, The Good Citizen has a marvelous Substack. It's it's a bit graphic in that I can't share it on the air. There's some language there that uh, that I don't think the FCC among others would would really approve of, but um the the good citizen one of the reasons I subscribe to that person's Substack is because I can handle unpleasant truths. I can handle difficult truths if I know that the person who is sharing them has actually put in the time to give deep consideration to the subject and isn't just spouting off on some superficial, you know, emotional lark. So, with that in mind, let's move on to another topic. This was a great article from Daniel Kowalski. I picked this up off intellectualtakeout.org. What an old coin collection tells us about money from the past. Apparently, Daniel was recently given a coin collection that belonged to another relative. And uh, I... He says, most of the coins in it aren't in circulation anymore. While you don't see them every day, they're definitely not rare. But they aren't in good condition either. In fact, they look worse for wear than the coins you get at the grocery store. So why would anybody bother up to save these when they could have spent these coins? And he says, the reason is because up until 1964, our American coins were minted in 90% silver. So why use precious metals in coins? Well, gold and silver were precious metals, which means they're scarce as well as high in quality. They've been used as a medium of exchange since prehistory. And as society and governments became more advanced, these metals were minted into standardized coins that people could use as money to exchange for goods and services. The precious metal in the coins was what backed the faith in the government that produced and minted the coins. After all, even if the government was produ- that was producing the coins collapsed one day, that gold still had value. And that system of sound money created public faith in the legitimacy of the coinage and encouraged the fast flow of commerce that in turn fueled economic growth. Now, of course, we we live in a slightly different system now, right? We've decoupled from the gold standard. Yes, you can still get gold and silver, but most people tend to pay their debts in Federal Reserve notes, which are just fancy IOUs if you're using the paper version or electronic IOUs if you're using what most of us do by tapping a card or inserting the card. Anyway, Daniel Kowalski talks in this article about uh, the silver value in U.S. coins. He talks about when the U.S. started to devalue its currency. Why did people save old coins? Why is there purchasing power in coins? And it's, it's just, it's a wonderful history of what has happened to our money And it won't take you a whole afternoon to read it and study it and understand. It's really interesting to me because he he says, you know, there's talk about abolishing pennies from circulation because the cost to make one exceeds its face value. Most people wouldn't even bother to pick one up if they dropped it. 
But he says, when I pick up these older coins from the first half of the 20th century, the first thing I notice is how worn down they were. That's because paper dollars had stronger purchasing power than the ones of today. In 1962, that was one of the last years of sound money. A loaf of bread cost you 21 cents. A gallon of gas was 27 cents. Eggs were 32 cents for a dozen. But inflation drives up the prices when you have too much money chasing too few goods. And since the 1960s, the government's been confronted with the problem of, you know, how to borrow money and spend money. So it's chosen a different solution, and that's the silent tax of inflation as a policy, which makes everyone's cash less valuable. It might make you want to buy some more coins. There's a nice clink to those silver coins. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to share with you uh, some thoughts from Brandon Smith's latest article. This is a guy who I like so much of what he has to say. I think he's one of the better analysts out there. In fact, I've got two very top-notch analysts whose work I'm featuring in today's show. And if you want to check it out in the show notes, uh, I won't have time to cover all of it. So I encourage you, go to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are the show notes for January 4th, 2024. And you can find the links to these articles so you can check them out yourself. Brandon Smith talks about whether our society is on the verge of great and tumultuous change. And if you feel that we are, and I I think we are too, I think, uh, you know, I don't say that with a sense of fatalism, like, yeah, we're doomed, Um, but things are going to change. There's no way they can't. Too many things are in motion, and and the trajectory is set. We're We're going to impact with reality at some point soon. So he talks about the glo- the juggling act that the globalists are engaging in for 2024. He says, if you want to know if a society's on the verge of great and tumultuous change, there are two questions you have to answer, or, well, ask, for that matter. First of all, are the people angry? And are the people hungry? Now, in the U.S. and in many parts of Europe, the people are indeed very angry for different reasons depending on their political affiliations. But on the other hand, they aren't hungry, at least not to the extent that they're desperate. But that could very well change in 2024, given the confluence of events that, we, that are swirling as we enter the new year. Brandon says, I continue to see 2024 as a nexus point for our era for a number of reasons. Now, the globalist timeline for their Great Reset mentions 2030 as the prime year for total centralization. That's the year they plan to put their carbon controls in place, remove most oil and gas energy, bring in their digital currency framework, finalize their 15-minute city programs, establish the IMF and BIS as overseers of the global CBDC structure, launch their cashless society, and integrate ESG-related goals into every aspect of the economy. By the way, that's their stated goals. He didn't just make that up. That's what the people pushing this have said. Now, he says 2030 is only six years away. That's a lot to accomplish in such a short amount of time. The globalists are going to have to either admit failure and change their timeline or create a substantial crisis in the near term to facilitate the reset. But he says, before I get into that too far, into the potential ugliness waiting in the next year, let's talk about the two biggest positive developments for 2024. So here's the good news. You could probably use some. First, 
the defeat of the COVID agenda. He says, I don't think many people understand how epic and important the battle over COVID lockdowns and vaccine passports actually was. The Western world was on the verge of complete authoritarianism, not a totalitarian tiptoe like we've been experiencing for many years. We're talking full-bore medical dictatorship and mass censorship. He says, I believe COVID was the plan A attempt to create reset conditions, and it failed. Now, if the establishment had achieved their goal of vaccine passports, the fight for freedom would be over. The passports would have made economic participation impossible for anyone that did not submit to the agenda, creating a secondary class of citizens, mostly conservative, that could then be targeted for systematic elimination. Luckily, enough people stood up and refused to comply that the plan was derailed, and apparently the establishment realized there were far too many patriots willing to take up arms and fight if they kept pushing the COVID farce. Remember that bizarre moment when most of the COVID propaganda simply stopped? Like someone flipped a switch and the media changed narratives overnight. Well, Brandon says, I remember. And this event was the ultimate vindication for all of us in the anti-mandate movement. All the fear, all the dread, all the doom-mongering over the millions of deaths, it all meant nothing. And they proved that the moment they shut down the hype machine and everything immediately went back to normal. The second bit of good news is the public is fed up with the woke cult. Now, Brandon says it took longer than it should have, mainly because too many people refused to believe that the conspiracy was real. But he says the woke cult has finally crossed the line enough times for the general public to get fed up. The activist insurgency has violated every boundary of decency and truth, and they've alienated a large contingent of the population. Their time is quickly coming to an end. Signs include the ongoing collapse of woke media giants like Disney, the, un- or the successful bi- boycotts of products like Bud Light and companies like Target. But he says if you know how to read social trends, you can also see more subtle signs. There's a growing disdain for third-wave feminism, LGBT cultism, and the insane trans movement. People are less afraid to ridicule SJWs, less afraid to cancel of cancel culture, and more willing to criticize their delusions. And he says, that's what happens when you target children with sexualized indoctrination and you argue against biological reality. This is what happens when you try to force people to embrace and normalize mental illness. This is what happens when you spend years trying to control people's speech with neo-pronouns and terrorize the internet with cancel culture. This is what happens when you invade every corner of pop culture and try to hijack it or sabotage it through propaganda. This is what happens when you declare war on traditional Western values. Everyone starts to hate you, and eventually they will organize to kick your tail. The only thing keeping the woke movement afloat at the moment is their alliance with the corporations and the establishment media. Globalist think tanks still spend billions of dollars funding social justice programs, and current government provides cover for the exploits of far-left zealots. But Brandon Smith says without the elites... The woke ideology would not exist. Millions of Americans are ready to snuff it out for good. Now, that's the good news. Those are the two positive developments. The the bad and the ugly include election 2024. He says, as I've mentioned in past articles, I believe there might not be a presidential election in November. Though current conditions would allow for one as long as nothing changes dramatically in the next several months, There hasn't been this level of national division over an election since the Civil War. And regardless of what happens or which side wins, there will be high potential for a violent reaction. 
The election of 2024 is actually developing into its own black swan event. Any indication that Donald Trump will be arrested before November or any widespread blue state plans to remove him from the ballot will be seen as election interference. And he says, I have no doubt that many Americans will seriously consider armed revolt. Then again, Trump's mere presence as a candidate will be used by far left groups as rationale to stoke riots. His re-entry into the Oval Office would mean mob actions and perhaps even terrorist attacks. So in this regard, it doesn't really matter if we end up with Biden or Trump. The eventual outcome will probably be the same, civil unrest, followed by a declaration of martial law in the next couple of years. I know that's that's a tough one. He says, my position on Trump has always been one of skepticism, primarily due to his terrible cabinet choices, including Anthony Fauci. However, Brandon says, I recognize that after four horrendous years of Joe Biden's woke authoritarian empire, there is no way that half the country is going to tolerate another term, especially if that term is achieved through perceived sabotage. Then there's the potential for shock events, such as Biden stepping down at the last minute, Trump being arrested but winning anyway, or a major geopolitical crisis which is used by the Democrats as an excuse to postpone, in air quotes, the election. But he says, make no mistake. There are many of these triggers in place today. Now, from here, he talks about geopolitical tensions soaring, the Red Sea being a good example of this, as well as the whole rest of the Middle East, the economic powder keg. And there's also a catch-22. He says, I suspect that the Fed will go down or continue down the path of deflation. They tried to cut rates once or twice, but when the consumer price index jumps, They'll go right back to higher rates and tighter credit. That's exactly what they did in the early 70s and in the early 80s, though the U.S. wasn't adding $600 billion in debt every month during that particular crisis. So how this deflation translates will depend on other factors, including geopolitical factors. And he says, I predict we're about to see an aggressive resurgence of unemployment by the end of the year. Americans are not buying more. They're merely spending more for the same amount of stuff. The stagflationary process always leads to a painful decline in overall consumption as well as standard of living. We've had our three-year boost to, due to COVID helicopter money. Now that the boost is over and fading, any action by the Fed on rates at this point will not help retail or the service sector. It will just serve to keep the stock markets afloat for a little bit longer. So he says, again, the end result is the same no matter what the central bankers do, and this is by design. If the U.S. elections play into the establishment's plans at all, Brandon says, I suspect it will be more in line with the optics of a renewed Trump presidency. It might serve globalist interests to, to more to keep the system intact, not to protect Biden, but in preparation for Trump's return, only to collapse the entire house of cards once he enters office or even right after he wins. Setting up conservatives as scapegoats for full-spectrum economic crisis makes a lot more sense than trying to maintain the facade of Biden for another four years. So he says, if the globalists fail to set the stage for the reset in 2024, they may be facing a mounting movement to bring them to justice. In other words, their juggling act is about to come to an end. I've got the link to Brandon's full article from alt-market.us. You can check it out at thebrianheidshow.com. When we come back, I'm going to share a little gem of an article from Annie Holmquist, as well as a few thoughts from Doug Casey. He was asked to make some bold predictions for 2024, and boy, did he deliver. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for tuning in. If you have not subscribed to my daily show notes, but you would like to receive them in your email, simple matter of going to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, click on show notes, any, any one of the show notes down at the bottom of the page, you'll see the subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email, which I know people are sometimes a little reticent about giving out their email. I understand that. You don't want it being shared or sold or loaned to anybody else because you don't want to be bombarded with ads and you know other annoying things. So I will not abuse that uh, that trust you send me your email what you will get is a copy of my show notes each day that I do the show that's it plain and simple won't cost you anything but you will find some great reading material and uh, hopefully you know you'll find some things that uh, you can share as as you wish with uh, those around you who are likewise gaining awareness of what's going on around us okay so I've got two articles I want to share. I'm going to jump to the article of the day. This one is from Doug Casey, and he has some bold predictions for a turbulent 2024. I'll tell you right up front that a few of these are bound to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. But I would encourage you, take a look if you dare, see if you agree with his prognostications. I like how Doug says, look, I don't want to sound, a, I hate to sound a pessimistic note, but you have to call them as you see them. And he says, there are storm clouds on the horizon, in fact, he says, I'm tempted to say the presage, they presage the perfect storm, but that phrase has become rather hackneyed, and it understates the case. Instead, he says, let me just say, I think it will be worse than even I think it could be, because the trend that's brought us here has been building for the last 100 years. It's been compounding upon itself. The curve looks exponential. He says, the only factor that gives me pause is that almost everyone now sees a tsunami coming, and reality usually confounds beliefs that everyone has so perhaps the greater depression will just turn out to be fear porn. But he says, that's not how I'm betting. We're looking at a potential financial and economic collapse and a social collapse, largely a result of wokeness, a putrid stew of socialism, entitlement, overt hatred, covert hostilities, and insane views on race and gender. These things will underwrite a huge political upset in this election year. Now, he says, of course, our most basic problem is an ongoing cultural collapse. The average American no longer believes in the idea of America. Forget about the American dream. Most, not just wokesters, now see it as a delusion, a fraud, or even a nightmare. Traditional cultural values are being purposely washed away. Forces are actively trying to destroy the things that made America. So is 2024 going to be the year where it all comes to a head? Doug says there's an excellent chance that it will be, but I expect the rest of the decade won't be any better. And from here, he's asked about, okay, well, let's talk about the Middle East. Where do you see the conflict headed in 2024? What are the, the implications? I'm not going to go into it, but it's big. And, you know, he's, he says the reason Jefferson gave us advice about peace, commerce, and, and honest friendships with all nations, entangling alliances with none, that was sound advice. But it has not been followed for quite some time. His take on the election is well worth your time. And he reminds us, you know, sometimes elections do make a big difference, like the 1933 German election that installed a certain mustachioed little dictator. He talked about the uh, 1952 election between Eisenhower and Stevenson. Eisenhower slowed down the role of the Leviathan state, but that 1964 election between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater, that was also critical. Goldwater was defeated after wanting to roll back the state. Johnson went on to install his disastrous Great Society programs. 
And then he makes this interesting observation. Starting in 1988, when George H.W. Bush ran against Michael Dukakis, Doug says, I don't really see that it's made any real difference which character won. For more or less the last 35 years, there's been very little difference between the right and left wings of the Demo-Publican Party, which we call the Uniparty. So who's going to be the next president of the U.S.? Well, he says Trump has the overwhelming support of the average red person. The Democrats, you know, the chances of them running Biden and Harris approach is zero. Maybe they'll pick a leftist general like Petraeus. But who's going to win? Doug says, well, I'd be betting on the Democrats again because they're more adept at cheating. Perhaps they'll find some ultra-serious crisis that will put the will allow the election to be put off. But he says, remember, they're actual Jacobins who will do anything to hold on to power. So take that into consideration. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it there for, for you to discover the rest for yourself. He goes into a lot of different uh, details here, but uh, the bottom line is see what's coming. Accept the fact that we are all going to lose something, maybe a lot. Okay, it's not the end of the world for us. We have to be resilient enough to be able to cope with, okay, my retirement funds, gone. My property may be gone. You know, there, there may be other losses that we can't even begin to quantify. But the bigger question is, what will you stand for? Okay, this isn't, this isn't meant to put you in a state of, oh, well, it's doom. I guess we just give up. Nothing we can do. There's plenty that we can do. But we have to acknowledge the reality. We cannot pretend that, oh, this is going to sort itself out and it's all going to be fine. You, you'll see. So let's take a moment. We'll shift gears here now. We're going to end on a more positive note. Let's talk about why America's kids badly need a chore culture. This is the latest substack from Annie Holmquist. And she says, the other day, NPR wrote a feature article about a unique program at John Brown High School in New York City. Despite being in the heart of one of the biggest metropolises in the U.S., John Brown runs an agricultural program for upwards of 500 students. Known as Aggies, these students grow crops, they care for livestock, they learn the rudiments of floriculture, viticulture, aquaculture, biotechnology, and entrepreneurship. Now, according to NPR... Such a program is an excellent addition to the high school curriculum because agriculture is a booming industry. The students who participate in the program will ac- accumulate a wide variety of hands-on experience which, with which they can land a job in the agriculture sector, a job which may even pull their families out of poverty. She says, while this is a great reason to encourage such a program, I think there's a deeper reason why more schools, both urban and rural, should consider a similar one. And she says, in a nutshell, such a program promotes what one might call a chore culture, a culture which instills hard work, responsibility, and the knowledge of basic skills which today's society has lost. The article gives a glimpse of what this chore culture might look like. Quote, it's Monday, 8 a.m., and these teens have already mucked stalls in the barn and fed the goats, alpacas, and miniature cows. They've rounded up eggs in the hen house, harvested cabbages, and a few green-tinged tomatoes, and arrange them in tidy tiers to sell in the agriculture store. Now they're ready to put in a full day of classes. End quote. And he says it's this type of chore culture that gives students an understanding of the world around them, so they won't simply think that milk comes from the grocery store. Well, how do they get it? 
I don't know, they have ways, right? (laughs) It's this kind of chore culture that teaches students to carry through with their responsibilities instead of simply ditching their new Christmas pets because they didn't count the cost of time, energy, and money it would take to raise them. And it's this type of chore culture which trains students in basic skills, such as knot tying or map reading, skills which various surveys have found are fast disappearing amongst today's young people. So she asks the question, would we see a change in direction, a change of direction in society if more kids were raised in a chore culture of hard work and responsibility both at home and school? Now, I consider myself very blessed. I live in a rural community right now. In fact, I live in the rural part of the rural community. But I get to see kids who on a daily basis are out there doing the hard work that comes with that, the caring for livestock or, you know, um, participating in, in work on the farm. And I have to say, you know, I'm not going to tell you these kids are perfect. Why they've never made a mistake in their lives. But the level of responsibility that I see in them is extremely reassuring. These kids are not as easily caught up in the latest fad. And, you know, they're, they're not like little social butterflies just flittering here and there looking for something to attach themselves to. They have real skills. They have grit. They're acquainted with reality. And by the way, your appreciation for the people who put food on the table will will increase exponentially related to the amount of time you spend living in, in an agricultural community. The farmer's work is never done. And a lot of what they're able to do is done because they raise their kids to help. Shoulder that burden to help, you know, carry out the work that has to be done. Those livestock have to be fed and watered. It doesn't matter if you don't feel like it. They need it. They depend on it. As do other people. So I'll leave a link here for Annie's article. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are the show notes for January 4th, 2024. Might be worth revisiting. I'm thinking about this as I look look, and I think, okay, well... Yes, there are dishes in the sink. I see uh, dog hair that needs to be vacuumed off the couch. I think we're going to start some chore culture right here at my house. (laughs) Kids, (laughs) I have an exciting and powerful lesson I want to share with you. Oh, I can't wait to see their enthusiasm. I'm sure it's going to be epic. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.